Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Today, I'm talking with Martin Reed, a health coach who specializes in insomnia and sleep issues. In the conversation, we range over all sorts of ideas and issues around sleep, starting with Martin's own struggles with insomnia and how they led him to become an insomnia coach, the most challenging aspects of working with insomnia, how he imagines the future of sleep health, and I even get a chance to run my own pet theory of sleep trauma by him to get his thoughts. Enjoy. Martin Reed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Really excited to be on. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an insomnia coach? Yeah, well, completely accidentally. Um, one of these twists that life sends you away sometimes. Sleep was something I never really thought about, something I loved, but didn't really think about. Um, and back in 2008 um, was when I emigrated from the UK over to the US. And it triggered some sleep disruption, which on reflection completely understandable um, why that would happen. I was moving country. I was also getting married that summer. Um, so big changes. But I started to find it hard to fall asleep. Um, take me a really long time. Just like the mind was just racing and really active. Couldn't relax. Couldn't switch off that brain. Um, anyway, uh, about a month or two later, that's when the wedding happened. And I thought, okay, maybe things will calm down now. But the, the sleep issues remain. So, you know, did what everyone does. You fire up Dr. Google, find out what, what the answers are. Um, not that helpful, at least at first. Most of it is all centered on sleep hygiene, not too different to today's landscape, unfortunately. Um, so you try those things, didn't really help. But luckily, the digging did pay off in the end because I came across these techniques, which we now know as being part of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, these CBTI techniques, which was completely different to everything else I'd read about. This this was something, instead of saying, you must go to bed at the same time every night, you must take a hot bath before going to bed. This was saying, spend less time in bed. I'm like, what? Spend less time in bed? How's that going to give me more sleep? But, you know, I figured I'd give it a try. And sure enough... After a few nights, I was getting really sleepy before going to bed, um, which was how sleep used to be. But it was something that I felt I'd lost that sense of sleepiness. So then you think, huh, OK, there must be something to this. Um, what, what else is there to know? And then I came across the, the stimulus control technique, which is get out of bed if being in bed doesn't feel good, basically, is the way I like to I like to think of it. And again, you first think, well, how is that going to lead to more sleep? How is that going to help me sleep? Getting out of bed, that makes no sense. But sure enough, it does. It makes the bed a more pleasant place to be because you're only in bed when being in bed feels good. If it doesn't feel good to be in bed, you're doing something else to make being awake a bit more pleasant compared to staying in bed. So anyway, these techniques worked for me. I got really excited about them. Um, but I found online these techniques are really hard to find to find out about there's no nobody's talking about these techniques it's all sleep hygiene and medication um so 
back then I was really into online community building. That was like my real passion. That was how I was making a living, like through creating forums and encouraging interactions and community and discussions. I thought there needs to be like a community about this, like to support people with insomnia, to make sure that they're getting good advice, good information, and to share these techniques. So I set up a forum, um, got some traction there, lots of discussion going on. And so I naturally learned more about insomnia just from talking to other people that were struggling with sleep. And so this led me to think, okay, maybe these techniques that worked for me, they can help other people. So I talk about them in the forum. They seem to be helpful. So then I thought, I wonder if I can create like a course, like um, some kind of training where I talk about these these techniques and, and offer them as a kind of educational curriculum for people to follow. Um, so there were some people in the forum that were interested in that. So I, I, I developed that course. Those people found it helpful that I rolled it out and it seemed to be helping people. And I thought, okay, there's something here. Now, what can I do to actually learn more about this in a more official capacity in terms of credentialing and education? And that really got me going down the path to where I am now. So I I ended up going back to school to pursue a master's degree in health and wellness education, became certified health education specialist, got the certification in clinical sleep health, and became a certified health coach. Because um, I really think that these techniques really lend themselves well to collaboration and a coaching relationship. I don't think it has to be a therapist or a psychologist, psychiatrist, a medical doctor sharing these techniques. I think they, they, they can be disseminated by coaches um, or by people who are really skilled and trained in these techniques. Um, and that's basically where I am now today. So I have my website, Insomnia Coach, and um, I have the YouTube channel. I offer the online coaching and we still have a forum on the site for people to register and just talk about their sleep and get what I like to think of as legitimate uh, sources of information and good advice about their sleep. Such a cool story. I, I'm just such a sucker too for stories where people end up creating something awesome and helpful for other people by scratching their own itch, right? Like yeah. you, you kind of having your own sleep issues and, and through your own curiosity, really initially kind of finding something that worked for you and then, and then helping yeah, countless other people um, in, in a variety of ways. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful because your perspective changes as well, because if you're creating something or you're working on something that's intended or comes from, helping yourself. Um, to this day, I think that's been so helpful because when I'm working with clients, I can kind of sense what all their objections are going to be before they even raise them with me because I had the exact same objections and I know all the challenges they're going to face because I had those same challenges. So for example, when you're building out the educational components of a course, you can address all of these potential barriers and potential roadblocks because you come from a place where you know what they are because you've experienced them. And that's so much different to reading about them or learning about them from a textbook, um, having your own experience. And then obviously having the experience of working with clients and they always, every client offers you a fresh perspective and a new way of thinking too. You mentioned the difference between um, coaching versus more traditional sort of therapy or, or, or psychiatry or 
How do you think about that difference? I think it's a really interesting um, delineation that we're, we're starting to, th hopefully starting to think more about. Um, so what's, what's your take on that? What makes the coaching relationship um, unique compared to say therapy specifically? Yeah, well, obviously I'm not a therapist, so I can't really directly compare the two. You would know more about the role of therapy um, and the scope of practice there than I would. But the way I see coaching is it's collaborative, like 100% collaborative, and the client is always the expert. I'm not the expert. The client is always the expert. So, for example, if someone is struggling with sleep, and I can see, or they tell me that they're spending like 10 hours in bed. Instead of saying, you shouldn't spend 10 hours in bed, that's not a good idea. We can explore how helpful that is. Like how helpful are you finding it to spend 10 hours in bed? Do you think that it might be worth considering spending a little bit less time in bed so that you spend more time in bed asleep instead of awake? It's really question-based and trying to get the client to come up with their own answers their own solutions um, and just recognizing the client as the expert. They are the expert on themselves and we're just really here in more of a supportive role. Um, so if a client asks me a question about a specific technique, just let's just say sleep restriction because that's what I just used, then of course I'll answer that question, but I won't actively give out that advice or that information unless it's requested by the client. And that's kind of how I feel is the real delineation between coaching and, th and therapy, whereas a therapist, correct me if I'm wrong, would be more inclined to give out the advice, perhaps before it's been asked for, um, which is perfectly fine, of course. Um, but the coaching is all about waiting for the client to ask for that information before, before giving it um, and trying to help the, the client come up with their own solutions and just to support them in that process of behavioral change because really that's what that's what it's all about in terms of moving past insomnia it's about changing those behaviors and supporting clients in making those changes yeah and i, I want to dig into some of that but I, it's so interesting that this distinction between coaching and, and therapy and i i think often the more like in some ways i think good coaches and good therapists probably have more similarity than just coaches versus 100 um, yeah and you know it's funny when i was first in my training i I remember pushing back against that. I remember hearing that idea that like, you're not the expert, the client is the expert. And I remember thinking, oh, come on. Okay, like that sounds nice, but like, well, I'm the one who's spending, you know, five years getting a PhD. Like, obviously I'm the expert, right? I have right. expert knowledge that they don't have. That's why they're coming to see me. Mm -hmm. But I think the more, what you have sort of hinted at or alluded to is the idea that expertise on its own is not helpful, right? If someone isn't able to use that knowledge, who cares? It doesn't matter how smart you are or what like wonderful techniques you know. So knowledge is useless unless it's able to be implemented in a yeah. way that works for that person, right? And so I, yeah. I, I love that. So to me, that's where how I now interpret that idea of the client is really the expert. They're the ones who, they're the only ones who can figure out how do I, take this knowledge or techniques or whatever and apply it to the, the particularities, like the uniqueness and challenges of my life, which there's no way I can just do, tell someone how to do that. So back to your point, it has to be collaborative, right? Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, I really like what you said about knowledge because knowledge is out there. You know, it's, there's books out there, for example, there's, there's the internet. We have 
un, pretty much unlimited access to knowledge. Um, if knowledge was, if a lack of knowledge was the problem, um, well, it's not, clearly not the problem because there is so much knowledge out there. There has that we're missing something, and I think the thing we're missing is just that personalization, um, that support structure, um, and that's really where therapy and coaching. Uh, that's the kind of void that I feel that therapy and coaching can help fill. Yeah, it's interesting too that I, I was thinking um, how you talked about initially you started with a, a, a community and, and then moved on to kind of a, a course or a curriculum teaching people, but eventually you moved into coaching. And I'm I'm wondering if you could talk about that decision, like why not just put all your knowledge and expertise and experience into a course and then just sort of let people run through it? Like why, tell me about that transition from not away from the course, but continuing to do kind of coaching specifically and why you think that's important. Yeah. In terms of insomnia, I think the techniques that we tend to use, although straightforward from like a theoretical or a knowledge-based standpoint, they can be tough to implement um, and they're challenging and they don't usually get results immediately. Um, you normally have to be pretty consistent and sometimes even sleep will get worse before it gets better in the short term. So I think that it's really helpful to have that personalization, um, to have that support structure, which is where a coach can be helpful. So you've got the educational component, which can be relatively standardized. That's kind of how my online coaching course works right now. A lot of the educational side is standardized through videos that clients can watch, but there's still the personal touch. Um, so the clients can have access to me. Um, so if they have questions or concerns, or if they're not sure if they're implementing something uh, in the most appropriate way, they've got that support. Um, they've got that collaboration. Um, and I think that's what really makes the difference. Because like you said, there are courses out there, there are books out there on how to beat insomnia, how to create better conditions for sleep. But the process can be difficult. So I think it can be really helpful to have someone you can turn to for some supports, some guidance to clear up any doubts that you might have. Um, and I think coming from my own experience, that was something that I know that I would have found really helpful, um, really valuable. So that's how I built out the course and the coaching structure the way I did, because I think it's so helpful to have that human element um, alongside the purely educational component. Yeah, I often tell people who are um, a little bit hesitant about therapy or coaching, one of the ways I'll frame it sometimes is, sure, you could do all this stuff on your own. You could read a bunch of books and you could, you know, search the internet and like, I'm not saying you can't do that, but if nothing else, it will probably be a lot faster if you do it with some kind of a guide, right? Yeah. With a coach, with a therapist, with someone who can really help you sort of buff out the edges um, and streamline the process. But I also, kind of stepping back and it's, it's interesting, and I didn't know this about you, but your background kind of in community building, um, you know, the, the more I do therapy and, and even kind of write and do sort of um, self-improvement type stuff with my blog and newsletter and courses, the more I'm, I'm really coming to the belief that uh, change, any kind of change, whether it's, you know, my clients who want to stop having panic attacks or people who want to sleep better or people who want to create better relationships with their spouses or lose weight or like whatever it is, 
change is, is like an inherently communal process. I think like, I think there's just something deep within us that is kind of wired to, to, to change together, like in some capacity, it's just so hard for genuine change, genuine sustained change to happen in isolation. Um, is more and more what I'm, I'm starting to, I don't know. How do you thoughts about that? Like, yeah, well, I think that people with insomnia, they do have that strong, like internal motivation to sleep better. Um, but it can be helpful, really helpful to have that support structure, whether it's a coach or a therapist, or even just your spouse, um, or other people who are experiencing some sleep issues. Um, the community side, with insomnia is kind of fraught with peril, I think, mm. because there is a lot of doom and gloom uh, associated with sleep issue issues. There's a lot of unhelpful advice, even through no fault of their own coming from people with insomnia. Um, so you have to be really careful if you're relying or pushing like a community angle when it comes to insomnia, because you can make things worse uh, I think like you can have someone who maybe has had insomnia for three or six months and then they go onto a forum and they see that there's people that have had insomnia for 20 30 years you know and they think oh my god that's going to be me this person's had insomnia for 30 years or someone's trying let's say sleep restriction and they join a forum and they see all these people who are struggling with sleep restriction saying it's leading to panic attacks during the day. And then this person's like, oh my goodness, that's it. I can't do sleep restriction now. Um, so you, I think there are definitely pros and cons to it. And that's something that I'm really aware of, like in, in the forum that I have on my site is there has to be those voices of reason. There has to be that moderation to ensure that the overall community is supportive um, it's not just doom and gloom. There's positivity and there's the sharing of good evidence-based information. Yeah. It's one of the few times where I will ever get really directive as a, as a therapist working with people with insomnia is basically just telling people to knock it off with the sleep forums online. Yeah. It, it is so potentially dangerous and, and detrimental uh, yeah, well, to people's progress. You know, um, <laughs> Maybe a case of cutting my nose off to spite my face. When whenever I start working with a new client, I tell them the same thing, um, and I suggest not even visiting the forum on my own site. You know, I'm like, I see that you you joined up to the forum. I'd even suggest not going there. You know, um, but again, some people do find it helpful. It just you can just ask a client, like, how do you feel? Like, how helpful are you finding that? Do you kind of go on that forum and you feel great and then you have a great night of sleep? Or do you kind of feel more worried, more anxious? Are you spending time on the forum that you might have been spending, hanging out with your kids, going for a walk in nature, doing something that adds value to your life and enrichment to your life? You know, really it's up to the client to make that choice. But the standard suggestion is usually let's shift attention away from sleep. Let's, let's avoid the doom and gloom. Let's keep away from the forums. Yeah. So we've talked about some kind of higher level um, ideas and principles in, in insomnia and helping people work through insomnia, but let's, I want to kind of dive into some of your specific experiences with this. Um, so what's the most extreme case of insomnia you've ever seen? And you can define that however you like. <laughs> in, anything like come to mind when I think of like a real kind of doozy? You know, I, as you'll probably recognize, 
most cases of insomnia from person to person are pretty much identical. Um, there's not really much variation. So I think that the real difference... Sorry, let more- me cut you off for a second. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that exactly? Because yeah, I, so- I think I know what you mean, but to clarify for people, when we say like they're almost identical, cases of insomnia are almost identical, like what do you, what do you mean by that? So we see... There's, we have the we have the thought the thought based side of it, the cognitive side, and the behavioural side. So the cognitive side is we see people putting a huge amount of pressure on themselves to sleep, um, having this really strong belief that sleep is like the most important thing in their life. It's the most important influence on their health. Um, that if they don't sleep well, they're going to have awful days. Their quality of life is going to be ruined. Um, they can't do things that they once enjoyed because of how they sleep, or they might withdraw from doing things that they once enjoyed in a bid to protect their sleep. And then we see the behavioral side of things. Virtually every client that comes to me is spending too much time in bed compared to the amount of sleep they get. Um, they're staying in bed, fighting with sleep, tossing and turning. Um, and they're, of course, usually taking a long time to fall asleep, spending a lot of time awake at night. And they're on the lower side of how much sleep we would expect someone to get, you know. So instead of say, seeing something like six to eight hours, maybe we're seeing something in the region of four or five hours, maybe, you know, with their averages. So we still, still see something on either side. So with that in mind, that's what I see as like a typical client. 99.99% of the time, that's what every client looks like. Um, I think the more extreme cases I see are just when we have those really firmly ingrained beliefs, when they're really firmly ingrained and it's really hard for someone to abandon them, to challenge them, or even just to explore them. Um, Some people just, the beliefs just become so entrenched. um, It really makes it hard for someone to make any kind of change. Um, In terms of what we see in the actual sleep architecture um on the extreme side you know maybe like two or three hours of sleep um but again this is really subjective you know and we we know that people with insomnia usually are getting a little bit more sleep than they think they are um So that can be helpful to work through with a client. You know, do you think there's any possibility you might be getting a little bit more than two or three hours? Um, And and that people who are quote unquote good sleepers over-report how much sleep they're getting. (laughs) Exactly. And that just leads to an even bigger disparity and more concern. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I, I hope I've answered your question there. You know, so in terms of extreme cases, not really there's not really much extremities but when we do see extremes it's more to do i think with the with the thought process side those entrenched beliefs more than what we actually see in terms of the sleep itself does that make sense yeah so this really resonates with my experience as well like you i might have a client come in who said you know a couple months ago you know i i don't know we had a new baby and so i've had a hard time sleeping and let's work through it or I've had clients come in who have said, I have been getting four to five hours of sleep per night for 20 years. Like I have had insomnia for it. And there is not necessarily a very strong correlation between who works through insomnia faster or more easily. Because like you sort of pointed out, the mechanics are pretty straightforward. Like what contributes to insomnia is pretty straightforward. Um, and when you correct those, 
it doesn't, it usually doesn't really matter either what triggered the insomnia in the first place or how long it's been going on, um, which is pretty wild. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. It's awesome yeah. <laughs> with, with, that, that that's the case with insomnia. But I, I want to run something by you. I've been had this kind of little pet theory sort of developing um, over the years. And while I think um, nine times out of 10, what you're saying is true, I, I have occasionally had very, very difficult cases um, of insomnia that do not respond nearly as, as quickly um, or as well. And the, the, the name I've given to these cases are people who have sleep trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that, like trauma is one of these words, it, it gets thrown around a lot. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the, to me, the, I want to run this by you, and, and I'm really curious to see what you think of this and how this matches up with your experience. But a lot of times the people who have the hardest time um, sort of implementing and sticking with a lot of the, the strategies with in CBTI and working through insomnia are people who have had a really traumatic experience with, um, difficulty sleeping, right? So they were, they were sleeping so little, or, or at least they thought they were sleeping so little that they were, you know, terrified that they were going to develop Alzheimer's and they were so afraid of it that they were having panic attacks during the day thinking about their sleep. They quit their job because they couldn't, you know, just re- sleep difficulties that really left a mark on their, not only in their life, but on, in their, like you were saying, their kind of belief structure about what sleep means, what the lack of it means and their ability to cope with it. And, and it seems to me like some people sleep difficulties cut them at like a, a deeper level to the point where they really have a hard time letting go of that fear of like, yes, I am making some improvements here, but it's all going to come crashing down, um, at the drop of a hat sometime. So I don't know, what do you make of that idea that, and I know, I know you're not a therapist and so you're not necessarily super well-versed in, in, in trauma and PTSD and all that kind of stuff. But this idea of like sleep trauma being an especially difficult for people, like, I don't know, I'm just curious about your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I definitely would say that it exists. Um, I think it's a good phrase to use as well. Um, you know, just from my own experience working with clients, there's, there's a couple that just spring to mind, you know, just as you're describing that. Um, I had a client in the past who she developed depression um, in the past. This was a number of years ago, but she attributed that development of depression to sleep difficulties. So now her real fear as it relates to sleep is that if she doesn't get her sleep back on track, she's going to develop depression again. Um, so I think that's a great example of like this sleep trauma you, you just talked about because now she's putting so much pressure on herself to sleep. Um, all she's thinking about is sleep. Um, and that, of course, is making sleep more difficult. But the reason why she's putting all that pressure on herself and so worried about sleep is because she attributes that depression many years ago with how she slept. So she's putting all that pressure on herself. And then I had another client who um, she had a family member. It wasn't even her own personal trauma, but she had a family member um, who was struggling with insomnia And they ended up turning to alcohol and drugs and had to go to a rehab facility. And now they're terrified that that's going to happen to them if they don't get their sleep back on track. Um, So there there can really be 
high levels of this sleep trauma. Um, but again, um, I don't always see a correlation between how well clients do um, based on this intensity of the, of the trauma or their experience. Um, because sometimes I'll be working with a client and they'll be sharing this information with me. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is going to, this is going to be tough. Are these behavioral changes is talking about these thoughts going to be, going to be enough. And they do really well, but then other clients, they really just find it hard to let go of those beliefs, you know, and that's where I think the delineation comes in between a coach and a therapist as well. If someone does have that deep seated trauma, um, if, if they're really struggling, a coach isn't the right person to, to help them with that. That's when they need to see a therapist or a psychologist, psychiatrist, a doctor. Um, that's another way, another area where I think we need to talk about the delineation between coaching and therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a kind of hypothetical, and I, I know it's a, it's, it's silly to some extent, but I think it, I'm curious about your answer. If, if you could like wave magic wand and give your clients perfect willpower to follow through on one particular action item or piece of advice. So you got generic client coming in and you, you get like a free pass to, I know no matter what this person will, you know, not get in bed till they're actually sleepy. Or if they wake up in the middle of the night and they can't fall back asleep, they'll actually get it out of bed. Or what would it be? Like, what's the one thing that would best serve most people to be able to actually follow through on and do when it comes to getting out of insomnia and improving their sleep. If you had to pick one thing. Oh my goodness. It's really hard to pick one. If, you know, if I only could pick one, it would be to do with going to bed only when you're really sleepy, only when you're sleepy enough for sleep and make sure that you're just not in bed for hours and hours and hours and hours. If you're not getting hours and hours and hours of sleep um, and to keep, to try and get out of bed by the same time each day. That can just be really helpful. Um, I'd love to just talk about like a bonus, a bonus extra thing that I would love to see clients do. And that is to just live their lives, you know, according to their own values, doing things that are important to them, that give them a sense of enjoyment, enrichment. Um, if we can do those things independently of how we sleep, we might start to think and worry less about sleep, put less pressure on ourselves to sleep because after all, we're not allowing sleep to influence our waking lives and our waking lives have far more influence over our quality of life than what happens when we're asleep. I'm still waiting to read that transcript from like a hundred year old on their deathbed talking about all the great sleep they had. Normally we hear people talking about <laughs> all the great things they did when they were awake. And so that's really where I'd love to see every client focus attention on. And it's something that even in like the CBTI space, we don't really see much talk about. We see it's all about focus on what happens at night. I think it can be really helpful to also maybe even more importantly, focus on what we're doing during the day when we're awake. I think that's so huge. First of all, I, we're right on the same page. I think my answer to the, the magic uh, willpower pill uh, would be that I, one of the biggest mistakes I see or, or kind of bad habits people or, or my, difficult mindsets people are in is that they think they should be uh, sort of rigid, strict about when they go to bed, go to sleep at the same time every day and intuitive about when they wake up. Don't get out of bed until you feel good and rested. And in reality, it's like the opposite, right? <laughs> you listen to your body and you only get in bed when you're actually sleepy, not just tired. 
right? But then keep a really consistent wake up time to kind of keep your, your sleep system in a good routine. Um, but so anyway, I th that's interesting. We're kind of on the same page there, it's, but going back to th this point about, uh, really being willing to live your life independent of what's going on with your sleep. Um, I, I think you are totally right that this is a huge area of opportunity for our profession, people who are working to help people with sleep. My, and I'm curious what you, your t take on why this is kind of, I'm not sure if it's ignored or if it's interfered with. And what I mean by that is one of the biggest problems or challenges being a, a sleep psychologist and therapist is culturally all the messaging around sleep is <laughs> I think well-intentioned, but totally counterproductive. It's, it's a lot of fear-based stuff. Like if you're not getting eight hours of sleep every night, you're going to develop dementia and you're going to die early and you know, all this terrible stuff. And the idea that like sleep is this big thing you have to like focus on a lot and you got to have your 15 point sleep hygiene checklist and you gotta, you know, you gotta be researching it and do trying really hard to fall asleep. And so ironically, because we're concerned about people not sleeping well, we've trained people to think that it's this huge, really important thing, almost to the exclusion of other things, which ironically only leads to sleeping hard. So it almost seems like a cultural problem around sleep. What, what do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, there's a lot to pick apart there. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, societal thing, or just the way we've always approached kind of medicine and mental health, whereby we look at a problem just without any context so let's take insomnia so we're just looking at insomnia without any context we need to fix the insomnia that will give someone a better life that's 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 the solution but maybe the solution is instead of just focusing on fixing something that we consider to be bad or negative what if we just add more good stuff and we just dilute the negative or the more difficult stuff down, you know, and the, the analogy that, that we see come up a lot of the time in kind of positive psychology, um, is if we're gardening and we want to create a bountiful crop, a bountiful harvest, if all we do is spend all of our time just picking up weeds every single time a weed crops up, we're going to have no harvest. But if we, maybe pull up a few weeds here and there, but focus the majority of our attention on planting and cultivating corn, the beets, the flowers, all the good stuff, then the outcome is going to be so much better compared to if we just focus on fixing what we perceive to be the negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So in a sort of related vein, how do you imagine, um, for better or worse, hopefully better, but let's say fast forward 50 years, you and I are hopefully doddering old guys <laughs> uh, talking about the good old days, but like what will contemporary cutting edge treatment for insomnia and sleep difficulties, how will it look different than what it looks like today? Do you imagine? And I know this is like a crazy question, but what, what would be some of your predictions? Um, okay. Well, the optimistic side of me would be that there's a lot more sharing of techniques and stuff that works helpful things um, there's a lot more education about sleep in general um, especially within medicine you know primary care physicians for example i'd love to see 
more sleep training just as a core part of earning your MD. Um, because unfortunately, when I'm working with clients, I do hear back from them about some suggestions they get from their doctor, whether it's the primary course of treatment being sleeping pills or giving a sleep hygiene flyer, stuff like that. It, it would just be so much more helpful, even if it just came down to a doctor giving out a flyer on sleep restriction, the technique of sleep restriction, only going to bed when you're sleepy, something like that could be so helpful. So I just like to see the dissemination of good evidence-based information being being out there, being more widespread and more well-known. Um, and, and I'd like to see the focus in terms of people who are actively seeking help for, for insomnia. I'd love to see more access to this information, whether it be through coaching, through websites, um, right now it just feels very limited. The access is very limited and it feels very ring fenced. Um, it's kind of, it seems like these techniques are quite protected. They, they're jealously guarded by the select few who have got a certain qualification or a certain credential. And I don't think that needs to be the case. I don't think sharing information about sleep restriction, for example, is a danger, um, that, that someone needs a license to share that kind of information. So I'd love to see those barriers to access fall as well. Um, whether any of this actually happens, um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm leaning towards less likely. Um, but the optimistic side of me, that I would love to see that that's how things change. The access is, there's better access, there's better education, there's better information out there in the future. That's that's my hope anyway. That's such, that's such a great point. I, the, uh, especially the primary care kind of education and training, um, and, and even other kind of mental health professionals who don't necessarily specialize in insomnia, I get so much of my <laughs> challenge working with people with insomnia is in some ways helping them unlearn well-intentioned but unhelpful advice they've gotten right. from other professionals, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that, that's just such a, it's such a shame. And, and like you said, it's, it's not that, you know, CBT Ivor insomnia, it's not rocket science. Like it's pretty straightforward actually. And, and you could imagine where even just someone, you know, a second year med student or a, a few hours, you know, at most of, of good instruction in, in this kind of stuff could make so much of a difference. So yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. What, so another question I, I kind of like to ask people, and I'm really curious about, about this from your perspective, but do you have something that, you know, relatively recently you've changed your mind about when it comes to sleep, insomnia, helping people? Um, it could be something kind of dramatic, like I've totally changed my mind about this technique, um, or it could be sort of a more subtle shift in the way you think about things, but, um, anything come to mind? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the biggest changes, um, personally that's occurred in my way of thinking over the past six to 12 months has been in how we deal with these unhelpful sleep related thoughts. Um, so traditionally, you know, as part of CBTI, we usually look to, challenge those thoughts or look for kind of chinks, chinks in the armor. Are these a hundred percent true? Maybe can we replace this with a more accurate way of thinking? Um, and I think that can be helpful just to create some, 
you know, this, this cognitive dissonance. Oh, I had that belief, but this is the evidence. How does this make sense? I think that can still be really helpful. But I think what can also be really helpful moving on from that is just recognizing that thoughts are just thoughts. So we really don't have to take action on them. We don't have to try and avoid them or suppress them or challenge them or run from them or do anything because they are just thoughts. And yes, they can make us feel uncomfortable, but they cannot harm us. They cannot physically harm us. They're just thoughts. So with this in mind, maybe a good way forward is just acknowledging and accepting thoughts when they enter our mind. And often when we don't have that engagement, when we don't try and run from them, when we don't try and avoid them or suppress them, they tend to just come and go. Um, and it's important to emphasize that our goal here isn't to kind of stop thinking or to, or to prevent ourselves from feeling anxious or worried because feeling worried or anxious just means we're having thoughts, we're having emotions. Okay, we know that we're human beings now, great. There's, but they can't harm us. So why do we feel inclined to respond to them? Really, we don't need to. And that's really kind of where my thinking is going now, especially among clients who maybe they've tried the traditional cognitive behavior, like the cognitive approach of challenge and replace. How about we just acknowledge and accept? Um, and that can be a really helpful way forward for some clients. I'm with you a hundred percent. Like that has really been one of my changes recently. Um, and I think it's um, among a sea of things that are discouraging and, and <laughs> not, yeah, just make me feel a little bleak about the future of mental health. Um, one of the bright spots I think is across disciplines, this acknowledgement of acceptance rather than kind of a aggressive engagement as, as an approach, whether you're talking about depression or anxiety or insomnia or whatever. I think, I think we are realizing that a lot of the time that's often just a much more productive, um, approach. It doesn't mean it's not helpful sometimes, like you said, but, um, yeah, just pragmatically, it's such a more helpful approach. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize there isn't really one size fits all. Um, some people still do really well just with that replacing these diff more difficult thoughts with perhaps more accurate thoughts. Um, but other people, they really struggle with that. They find it's more activating, you know, and um, I wish I could remember where I heard this from. Um, it was from an, from an online course I took um, about ACT, I think it was. And they were talking about the differences between, you know, CBT and ACT. And they said, well, CBT is, let's say that, all your thoughts and your worries, they're like this big fortified castle and, and, and they're throwing like firebombs, arrows, your archers throwing arrows at you. And your response in traditional CBT would just be throwing fireballs back, throwing catapults back, uh, you know, arrows back. Whereas ACT is more about digging a tunnel under that castle and just watching it all fall down and crumbling from the foundation. And I think that that's quite kind of a helpful and interesting analogy. That's great. I really, Ooh, I'm, I'm always on the hunt for good analogy <laughs> metaphors. So I'm definitely putting that in my, in my metaphor <laughs> toolbox. That's a good one. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree. I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So final question. One of the things I've 
observed as really helpful in my clinical practice with, with people who struggle with insomnia is occasionally talking to people about my own experience with with sleep um i've i was i don't think i've ever suffered necessarily with with kind of you know intense levels of insomnia but i definitely had as a as a kid like kind of a teenager in, in early 20s i d- I definitely would be kind of dreaded going to sleep because my, like you said, my mind would just be going and I'd lay there forever and be frustrated about not falling asleep. And, um, but one of the things that I think is hard for people who struggle with insomnia is it, it feels like the world is kind of against them. Like 99.9% of people are great sleepers and they just like, it's, it's the proverbial, like annoying spouse who just like their head hits the pillow and they just fall right to sleep. And then I'm laying here like frustrated and jealous. And, um, but in reality, I, Ever, even like quote unquote sort of healthy, normal sleepers, people who don't have insomnia, they have bad nights of sleep too. So being a good sleeper doesn't mean you don't struggle with sleep sometimes. And, right. and so I, one of the things that's been really powerful for me is just sharing openly with a lot of my clients that like, yeah, sometimes I have a really crappy night of sleep or, or stretches of really crappy nights. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, what, what, does, what does not great sleep look like for you? Martin and, and and how do you how do you as someone who has kind of gotten over insomnia and now even is a an insomnia coach, um, I don't know maybe it would be helpful for people just to hear about kind of what do sleep struggles look like um, for you? Well, you know, s- sleep for me now is which is going to sound really ironic because I'm just talking about sleep all day long every single day, but it's really <laughs> something that personally my own experience i don't really think about that much you know i'll go to bed um when i'm sleepy um sometimes it's earlier sometimes it's later i do have a pretty consistent out of bedtime um but that's because i have to get my children up it's become a lot more consistent since i've had kids um so and, and they're at school um but even before that um there probably wasn't as consistent a rise time, um, but I was sleeping well, so I really, really didn't think about it. Um, difficult, a difficult night for me would probably just be, you know, waking up say three hours before it's time to get out of bed, and then finding it hard to fall back to sleep. But it's something that doesn't bother me anymore, or and and that's really really the difference that we see in people with insomnia and people without the person with insomnia would be really worried and concerned that there's they've worked three hours before they wanted to get out of bed maybe put pressure on themselves try and fall back to sleep worry about what the day is going to bring whereas i'll just be there being like huh it'd be pretty nice if i could fall back to sleep but maybe i'll just hang out it's pretty relaxing cozy and warm um and if it starts to feel uncomfortable to be in bed i'll just get out of bed and start the day um but like you said, it can be helpful to share your own experiences with clients. Um, one common experience that I get, um, clients will say to me that they feel like they're doing well, they're making good progress, and then they have like um, an important meeting at work or a job interview or something, something big, and then they'll experience sleep disruption and they'll worry that the insomnia is back. And that's when I think it can be really helpful to share some personal experience, you know, because I think it will be more unusual to sleep well um, in those circumstances. And I say to people, you know, I I find it really difficult to sleep when something good is going to happen. You know, so if I'm about to go away on vacation and I'm going to be catching a flight, I'll find it really hard to sleep. Um, And that's normal and that's okay. 
Um, it's okay to have difficult nights. I still am able to catch the plane. I'm still able to enjoy my vacation. Um, and when clients experience ups and downs, it doesn't even have to be about sleep. You can just, sometimes it's helpful to just talk about what's going on in your own life where you've been trying to do something challenging. It felt like you were making progress. Then it felt like you weren't. But if as long as you keep on moving forward, you're always going to make progress. You know, you can go stand in your backyard now. And if you take like two steps forward, one step back, if you keep doing that, you're still going to get to the end of your yard sooner or later. Um, so it's really just a case of keeping on moving forward and share, sharing your own experiences can be really helpful, helping clients continue to make progress and move forward. I love it. Martin, I can see why so many people love working with you. You've got a great, not only are you, are you very knowledgeable, but your, your attitude and the, just the way you talk about sleep is very, um, you know, confident, but also sort of real and sort of soothing and, and comforting, N not in a kind of, um, superficial way, but in a, in, you've got kind of a deep sort of calm to you about, uh, about this topic that is so distressing, um, yeah. for so many people. And so I, I think that's awesome that you're able to kind of project that and help people come to find that, um, themselves. So I really appreciate you making the time to come on and share so many of your, your stories and bits of wisdom, um, with us. If people want to learn more about you and, and all your awesome work with insomnia, where can they go? Um, I would just suggest starting off on the website. Uh, it's insomniacoach.com and you can find, find me there and find links to my social media accounts, YouTube channel, um, and all the different ways that someone might be able to work with me if they feel so inclined. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.